Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this gathering, the blessing of seeing our now brother in Christ enter into those waters that he might die to himself and rise in the resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each and every one of us who has made that profession of faith and been baptized as well with great encouragement this morning, Lord. We want to be rightly edified by your word. And as we see, again, the history of your people rebelling not only against you, but against your deliverers, Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that we would examine ourselves this morning and ask, how are we resisting Christ? I pray, Father, that you would show us his beauty Show us that He is gentle and lowly. Show us His goodness that we might be drawn to Him in love and have a deep desire to live holy lives, to live in accordance with Your teachings. Father, in in light of this passage, I ask that Cambrian Park Baptist Church would not be a rebellious people, that we would not carve out idols for ourselves, but instead, Lord, born again by the Holy Spirit, we would live as a holy people, testifying to the work that Christ has done, not only with our lips, but in how we live. I pray, Lord, you would bless us this time with your spirit and cause us to be utterly astonished by your magnificence and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good, good morning. Uh, yeah, you know, I love them. I love them. I love them. I love baptism so much. I just wish that we could do them every single Sunday. There's something about those waters and someone going in and testifying and then hearing what Kenny had to say. Um, I hope your heart was rightly stirred. I know mine was. Um, He sent it to me. I got a chance to read it. And then I heard it again and I was stirred even more. Um, So I praise God so much for that. Um, Again, your Bibles, if you're not there, Acts chapter 7. Uh, do not panic. This is, this is part two. Part one we looked at last week and we got an understanding of, of Stephen really coming out their idolatry, calling out their idolatry of the temple and the religious system and the law itself. We're going to come back and look at some of the same verses, but we're going to look at it in the context of Israel and really humanity rejecting God's salvation and specifically those God has sent to save. And so if you remember, we, we're picking up here. We're five years post-Pentecost. The beloved Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, he is standing before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish high court, and he's been accused of two things. One, for speaking blasphemy against the temple, that's where they believed God resided, and therefore they, were, they said, Stephen, you're speaking against our way of worship. And they accused him, number two, which we're going to look at today, of Stephen speaking blasphemously against Moses and the law. And we're going to see how those charges were certainly not true. Um, Last week, he had to give a defense. He said, listen, you've elevated this temple and the religious system to a place it ought not be. And so he showed a long history, going all the way back to Abraham, saying God has been with his people, Abraham, Joseph, into um, Moses, and then all the way up to Solomon, outside of Israel and outside of the temple. So whatever you've conjured up about God living in this building made by hands, you're wrong, that's an idol. And he calls them out on it. And then... He addresses a second charge, so there are two main themes, idolatry of the temple and then speaking against Moses and the law. Look at verse 14 in chapter 6. Go back a little bit. Here's the charge again. We have heard him speaking of Stephen, saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so again, using their own historical record, Stephen's going to say, I'm going to show you something very interesting. God has always been sending deliverers and you have always rejected them. 
And he's going to culminate this argument in the context of Christ. Focusing really on Moses. Say, look, at, look at how the Israelites responded to Moses. And you did the same thing to the greater Moses, the true Savior, Jesus Christ. There, of course, we know from um, next week, we'll look at it. They're not pleased with what he had to say. Um, Stephen's speech, you could say, is trying to show a truth in the negative. Right? He's saying, look, at, for the history of, of Israel... They have responded wrongly to God and to God's deliverers. And so he's saying, don't do the same. You know, and sometimes it's, that's a really good way to learn, right? Either from our own mistakes or looking to others and saying, I, I shouldn't do that because the consequences are really bad. My father has never smoked a cigarette. Now, when he was younger, smoking was a big thing in his day. Um, and in fact, most of my friends, their parents smoked as well. Um, it, he didn't. He did not smoke because he didn't have the chance. He didn't smoke because his father was a really heavy smoker. In fact, my, my images of my grandfather, he always had a cigarette in his hand all the time. I never saw him without one. Um, he ended up dying of emphysema. My grandfather did. And when my grandfather was in the hospital, the last time my dad went to go see him, um, they had a visit, and my father knew he probably wouldn't see him again. And as he left the hospital, he looked up, and he saw my grandfather up in, a, up in the window standing there, waving goodbye in his hospital gown, oxygen in his nose, and cigarette in hand. And my father said, I will never, ever smoke. And he died, I think, a week later. In other words, there's a lot to learn from those who are not submitting rightly to God. So here's your theme. Learn from others' mistakes and live. Learn from others' mistakes and live. We want to do that this morning. I'm going to show you three catastrophic mistakes from this passage. Number one, the patriarchs rejecting Moses. I'm sorry, the patriarchs rejecting Joseph. Number two, the Israelites rejecting Moses. And then number three, the Jews rejecting Christ. So let's learn from the patriarchs' rejection of Joseph, the Israelites' rejection of Moses, and the Jews in the time of Stephen rejecting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Number one, the patriarchs reject Joseph. So after revealing God's presence with Abraham in Mesopotamia, not in the holy city, not in the temple, there's a great focus now on Joseph and the patriarchs. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, chapter 7. Stephen says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And so Stephen does something very interesting here. He says, I'm, I'm going to explain to you that Joseph was the deliverer, and that was obvious from the text. He was going to deliver not only um, his family, but uh, many in Egypt who would have starved to death. But there's an interesting highlight that you really don't get in the, in the Genesis account. And he's saying, I want you to notice how the brothers rebel against Joseph, who is their deliverer. And so that's the theme he's trying to create. Look at verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. Now, it's fascinating. Stephen uses the word patriarch. Patriarch means father. And in this case, it's the father of, of the nation of Israel, the fathers of, of the nation of Israel. In the Genesis account, Moses used the word brothers. But he will not do that here. Stephen will not do that here because he wants to magnify those who are rebelling against God's deliverer. All the way in the very beginning, going back to Genesis, God's people had a terrible tendency to rebel against those God sent to save them. Not a good trend line. In juxtaposition to Stephen, look at the latter part of verse 9. God was with 
Joseph. God rescued Joseph. God had favor and gave favor and wisdom to Joseph before Pharaoh. He made Joseph a ruler over Egypt. In other words, Joseph is set apart to deliver his people. And, and the, very, the very patriarchs, the founders of their faith, are rebelling against God's deliverer. And there's something so significant about an insignificant point that's probably been read to you now two Sundays and it passed right by. Joseph highlights the two visits of the brothers seeing Joseph in Egypt. Look at, they don't, they don't get him on the first time, but they recognize him the second time. Look at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, great affliction, and our fathers could find no food, the fathers being the patriarchs. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit to see Joseph. Verse 13, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So two visits. Visit number one, brothers don't notice. They don't know that it's Joseph, their brother. They don't know that it's their deliverer. Visit number two, they come back and they do. There's great fear. There's reconciliation. But they get him on the second visit. You say, well, why is that significant at all? It seems small here. It would be if not for what Peter preached in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter made a point to talk about the two visits of Jesus Christ. Just listen. This is Peter now, post-Pentecost. He said, you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Then he said, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that he may send the Christ a second time appointed for you. In other words, uh, Stephen, in retelling the story, said, listen, our fathers made a catastrophic mistake. They did not see Joseph was their deliverer the first time around. By God's grace, they did the second time. And he's saying to them in very clear language, you made that mistake with Jesus. Christ came and visited us the first time. You rejected him. You killed him by putting him on a Roman cross. Don't make the same mistake our fathers did. Now, for the fathers, it worked out. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph said to his brothers this, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to love you. Then he said this, As for you, you meant evil against me. You sold me into slavery because you wanted me dead. But God meant it for good, listen, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Stephen so desperately wants the Sanhedrin to see. They got it wrong the first time around. God sent the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, and they killed him. And so here the gospel of grace comes in, and it's a call to repentance. Don't do the same thing. Don't enter into the same mistake. Because just as Joseph was raised up in order to save many people, Jesus Christ, through his death death and resurrection, offers salvation to many too, including the Sanhedrin, including those who had rejected him first time around. Now, beloved, I would argue we stand in the same place as the Sanhedrin this morning. Christ has come, Christ is risen, if you're Catholic you know, and Christ will come again, right? He's going to come again in all of his glory. The only question for us is how are we going to respond to him? What will our story end like when you come before the living God? Will you remain in rebellion like the Sanhedrin? Will you reject the fact that Christ has in fact come, that he did live the perfect life, that he died our death? Are you going to reject that he was buried, that, he was, that he's risen, and that he's sent into heaven, and that he offers salvation and grace to all who repent and believe? Are you going to reject that? Or will you be like Joseph's brothers who see the deliverer on the second time round? They receive forgiveness from God. God said, you meant it for evil. I meant it for good. I'm going to bless you. And he did. They became the nation of Israel. 
How many times must God tell the same simple story? Man sins, God sends a deliverer, man rejects the deliverer. It's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. John chapter one, we know this from the beginning of the Gospel of John. He, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, what? Did not know him. Then speaking of Israel, he came to his own, his brothers, and his own people did not receive him. Catastrophic historical mistake made over and over again. But then listen, John says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, we don't have to make the same mistake. We don't have to be like the patriarchs, rejecting God's deliverer. So point number one, I pray you're with me, the history of God's people is a sordid history. The deliverers were sent by God again and again, and God's people again and again rejected them, rejected salvation. So you say, well, they must have been smart people. They were. They couldn't have continued to do this, right? They couldn't have made that same mistake to reject the deliverers again. Point number two, the Israelites reject Moses. Now remember, the second charge the Sanhedrin brought against Stephen was, you're blasphemy against our temple, our place of worship, and you're blasphemy against Moses and the law, our very way of life. And so, so in order for Stephen to address this charge and then bring light to the dialogue because there was much darkness, they wanted him dead, he says very clearly, listen, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they rejected Moses, who was God's deliverer, and when Jesus Christ came into our spiritual darkness, into our wilderness, you rejected him too. And so he's drawing all these direct parallels. But he does the same thing as he did with Joseph. He says, listen, God chose him as deliverer. Look at verse 10. Stephen tells us that Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Not necessarily physically beautiful, but that may be the case. But he was beautiful because he was going to become the deliverer of God's people. And then as we just heard Kirk read in verse 34, we know that God came to Moses in Midian through the burning bush. He said this, verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, speaking to Moses, I will send you to Egypt. And so God says, listen, I'm the, I'm the one who's going to deliver. I've come down, but I'm going to use you, my faithful servant Moses, to be the person, the deliverer, who will interact on my behalf. Now, no one on the Sanhedrin would have disagreed with what Stephen had said up to this point in time. They're probably, some of them are saying amen, thinking that he's arguing their point. We hit verse 35 and things start to turn. And everybody there listening knows, oh, he's talking about us. He's saying we're like our forefathers. And he begins to speak very plainly and make direct parallels between the fathers who rejected the deliverers in the past and the Sanhedrin and the Jews at that time rejecting Jesus Christ. There are five particulars here. There are so many I could have pointed out, but I'll give you the five big ones, all right? I don't want to overwhelm you. Maybe I already am overwhelming you. I, I, forgive me if that's true. Number one, Stephen reveals the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus Christ and the rule of Christ is the same as the Israelites' rejection of the rule of Moses. Look at verse 35. Stephen says to them, This Moses, whom they rejected their forefathers, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? Now, if you remember last week, we talked about, we focused on the temple and the fact they made a temple an idol. And I referenced Mark chapter 11. That's at the very end of Jesus' life, the last week of his life, and he goes in and, and he cleanses the temple, casting out the money changers and the marketeers. 
Um, at, the, at the end of that dialogue, the Jews have a question for him. And it's a, it's a really good question. They said in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to Jesus and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? How, what right do you have to exercise this type of rule and this type of authority in this place, in this temple? All the miracles in his three and a half years of ministry all the kingdom teachings, all the declarations by himself and by others that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Deliverer of Israel, they had seen and they had heard, but they what? They refused to believe. They would not come under the rule of a no-name carpenter from a no-name family, from a no-name city like Nazareth. They weren't going to come under that rule. They had the seats of power. So number one, they rejected the rule of Jesus just as the Israelites rejected the rule of Moses. Number two, they rejected Jesus as their redeemer as the Israelites rejected Moses as theirs. Look at the latter part of verse 35. Stephen says, this man, speaking of Moses, God sent as both ruler, not just ruler, and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So by identifying Moses as redeemer or liberator or deliverer, he's pointing them directly to Christ. Now, Listen, these are smart folks. They know what he's doing. He's making an ironclad argument saying, you're just like your forefathers. God sent a deliverer, you reject him. Jesus said in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, you can finish it, but in order that the world might be what? Saved, redeemed, liberated through him. So God The Father sent God the Son to liberate Jew and Gentile, not from the bondage of slavery in physical Egypt, but from the bondage of sin and slavery in our own hearts. But like their forefathers, they refused to hear. They rejected his rule. They rejected his redemption. I'll show you a third. Like the Israelites with Moses, the Sanhedrin rejected Jesus' power. Look at verse 36. This man, Moses, led them out of Egypt, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. My beloved, the the Israelites lived these miracles. No one disputed they were real. They participated in them fully. And yet, I want you to notice, the miracles were not sufficient to keep their hearts in line with Moses as the deliverer and God and faithfulness to God. They still deviated. And it was the same with Jesus Many of the Jews rejected Jesus' miracles as being myth. They said, those didn't really happen. You're just making these things up. Several saw them, and so they couldn't deny him. And so, of course, you know what they did. They said, oh, yeah, that, that was a real miracle, but it wasn't by God. It was by Satan. Jesus comes along, and he pleads for them to listen. This is John chapter 10. Jesus said, you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am the Son of God, which he is, and therefore it's not blasphemy. Then he said this, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, speaking of the miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I'm the deliverer. I'm the redeemer. But instead of believing that in fact Christ was the greater Moses in light of all the miracles he performed, they rejected him too. They rejected his rule. They rejected his redemption. They rejected his power. They rejected the prophecy of Moses. Number four, look at verse 37. 
Stephen says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, they know this. Remember, they, they accused Stephen of speaking against Moses. And Stephen says, oh, by the way, Moses said, another deliverer will be raised up, another prophet, that is Christ. And so you, in fact, are speaking against Moses and turns the table on the Sanhedrin. Stephen reminds them that God would raise up a prophet for them like Moses, but so much greater. So much greater. Now, the Bible says that we know a prophet's a true prophet if what they prophesy comes to pass. You can tell a false prophet is what they say doesn't come to pass. Jesus Christ repeatedly during his earthly ministry, he said it so much the disciples started to hate and said, stop saying that. We don't like that storyline. He said in Luke chapter 8, 22 and other times, the son of man speaking himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So much so when he said it the last time, Peter and Peter said, I don't want to hear that anymore. May it never be. So it was an historical fact. Christ had prophesied to his death and resurrection. It is a historical fact that that actually happened. And many of the Sanhedrin, they knew it. They knew it. It was unmistakable that Jesus Christ was the greater prophet that Moses had spoken of. And yet what? They refused to believe. They rejected the rule of Jesus. They rejected the redemption of Jesus. They rejected his power. They rejected his prophecy. I'm going to give you one more. If you're still with me, I pray you are. Just as the Israelites rejected the oracles of God, the law of Moses, so too they rejected the oracles of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 38. This Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. So that's a description of the people at Mount Sinai receiving the law. And they were with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And they made a calf in those days, listen to this, and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. So it was in the very presence of the people of God that the oracles were received by the deliverer, Moses. But instead of receiving the oracles and following the deliverer, Stephen reminds his audience, our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him, speaking of Moses aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So not only did they reject God's law and God's oracles, they reject the Savior. They reject Moses. In fact, Stephen here, he uses emphatic language. Thrusting him aside is to to push away or to decisively reject. They were repulsed by Moses. Instead, they turned their hearts to Egypt and they turned their hearts to slavery and made for themselves a golden calf. During his earthly ministry, Jesus offered liberation as well from slavery, and from sin, but not from Egypt, but from our own sinful hearts. It was a freedom offered to all mankind. Freedom not accomplished by the law of Moses, but accomplished by the law of Christ, by salvation that comes through grace and faith. The law of Christ, which tells us to love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The Jews would have none of it. They had taken the oracles of God, they had taken their Bible, and they had, by the time that Stephen comes on scene, you know, the Jews had cultivated 613 new laws. 
they added to it. It was called the Mishnah Torah. They added it to the Torah. 365 negative commands. Interesting, there are more negative. 248 positive commands to, because that the, it was the law and the submission to the law that was their means of salvation, at least in, in their worldview. You thought that reading through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy were hard. My goodness. Grab the Mishnah Torah, throw that on, and see how hard that might be for you. Like the Israelites with Moses, the Jews, they thrust Jesus aside by nailing him to a cross, and they turned their hearts to Egypt by embracing their own idols, exalting the law, exalting the temple above God, above God's deliverer, and above the law of grace. In other words, just like their forefathers, my beloved, the Sanhedrin and many of the Jews, they rejected God and rejected his Savior. Stephen, at this point in time in the speech, he has their undivided attention, and I pray he has yours too. In other words, the, what the implications now are explicit. And Stephen is saying to you, you are that rebellious generation. You're doing the exact same thing. Verse 42, just as God turned away from the Israelites in the wilderness and handed them over to their idols, Stephen's saying, he's doing the same with you. He turned away from them and handed them over. He's turning away from you and he's handing you over to. My beloved, in the Jewish worldview, there would have been no more difficult words to hear than God has handed you over. They knew what that meant. In the same vein that Paul taught it in Romans chapter 1, it means that God is releasing you or releasing a people to your own sinful desires. No more common grace, but you living your life as you see fit, as Lord of your life, doing what you want to do when you want to do it. Unrestrained deprivation of the human heart lived out by someone who says they follow Christ. And then we're told in verse 43 that he will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Beyond Babylon. That's worse than the exile. And for us, for all who reject Jesus Christ as Lord, that is into that place where there's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Stephen's right. They knew it. They knew it. Like the Israelites with Moses, the Sanhedrin, along with many other Jews living in Jerusalem, had rejected Jesus' rule, his redemption, his power, his prophecy, his word. They were guilty. They were guilty. So we've seen, number one, the patriarchs rejected Joseph, Joseph, their deliverer. The Israelites rejected Moses, their deliverer. Lastly, the Jews rejected Jesus himself. The question for us, and we'll really answer this well next week, is how would the Sanhedrin respond? And for you personally, how will you respond? How did they respond? You're not going to like it. And how will you respond? So point number three, the Jews rejecting Jesus. For 49 verses, Stephen has been building his case historically using the theme of the temple and their idolatry of the temple and their idolatry of Moses and the laws to this climax here in verse 51 and he leaves the historical record no more about the forefathers now it's directed to them look at verse 51 he said you stiff-necked people uncircumcised and hard in ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, beloved, most of the commentators talk about this is a, a really, he ends 
in, in kings with the temple being built by Solomon. There's a lot of history after that. Why does he stop? I have no idea. I think, though, he's seeing their faces, and he's getting nowhere. And so he says, all right, enough of the historical analogies. Let's go right at it. You are the stiff-necked people. You are uncircumcised of heart and mind. In other words, he, he uses back then a classical rhetoric technique called a peration, peroration, and that's where he builds a case and then makes an emotional appeal to get them to change. Right? Pete, Stephen's after their hearts. He wants them to come to a saving grace. I want you to notice something in verse 51. He moves from the second to the first person. Did you notice that? Previously, he states four times, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. He gets to verse 51, and now it's your fathers. He's making a categorical distinction between himself now in the Holy Spirit, being born again, and those who rebelled. Verse 51 again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And suddenly, Stephen says, I'm not part of that. I'm not part of that resistance of the Holy Spirit. We know he's not because Stephen's filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only salvifically, but he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That term stiff neck, that, you know what that means. When you were a child, I had some stiff neck children, literally stiff neck children. When you go to discipline, they stiffen their neck like that. It's speaking, he's obviously drawing on a Hebrew metaphor going back to Exodus 33. God used that term, by the way, first. Exodus 33, if you remember, God says, I'm going to send you off to Egypt, but I'm not going with you. He said, for you are what? A stiff-necked people. You're rebellious, you're disobedient, you're idolatrous. And then Stephen says, and by the way, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. And he's saying, your spiritual state is dead. You, You may have circumcision of the flesh. You may claim to be a child of Abraham, but Abraham was a child of God because of faith. And he said, you have never been born again. In other words, Stephen drops, he drops the hammer here. And what he wants is he wants the same response that Peter got at Pentecost. He wants that same response. Listen to this. This is how Peter ended his sermon. Peter said, All the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's how Peter ended his sermon. You remember the response? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, Acts 2, 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's what Stephen wants. He's painted this historical picture of idolatry. He's he's explained to them that they, like their fathers, have rejected the Savior, and he wants them to to respond through repentance and faith. Instead, he gets resistance, more resistance. Resistance is you always resist the Holy Spirit. He said, like your forefathers, they persecuted the prophets who were sent by God. You've done the same. He said, well, when did they they persecute? They persecuted John the Baptist. They cut off his head. The greatest prophet of all, Jesus Christ, they nailed to a cross. Certainly all 12 disciples we know to this point in time who are proclaiming Jesus Christ prophetically, they are persecuting. And we know in a matter of moments, they're going to become murderers by killing Stephen. Stephen said, You resisted the Holy Spirit just like your forefathers who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They killed the prophets who talked about the coming of Christ, the righteous one. These men did worse, Stephen said. 
he caps it off by saying, listen, you've committed the greatest sin of all. They killed messengers who were talking about the Christ. You, you killed the Christ. You killed the Christ. Verse 52, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The righteous one. These were men about the law, at least in their minds. We're told in verse 53 that the Jews received the laws delivered by angels, but they did not keep it. They were, they were hypocrites. Say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, the law said you shall have no other gods before the Lord. Right? But they had committed idols of their temple, their system, and their own law. The law said very clearly, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. How did they take the Lord's name in vain? They killed Christ. The law says that you shall not lie. They're participating in false charges being brought up by a man who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and speaking the truth in love. The law says thou shalt not commit murder. They've already murdered the Christ and they're moments away from murdering Stephen. They were hypocrites of the greatest kind. My beloved, the same charges stand against each and every one of us. Not one of us can sit here with a clear conscience to say, I've never committed idolatry, I've never taken the Lord's name in vain, I've never lied, and I've never committed murder in my heart. So I've never murdered anybody physically. Jesus said very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. So we stand in the same situation as these men. Stephen's done. He's finished his speech. He said what needed to be said by the power of the Holy Spirit. The guilt was before them. And they, like us, only had one of two ways to respond. There's only one of two ways to respond to this. They could hear the loving rebuke from this godly man, repent of their sins, be completely forgiven by the blood of Christ, receive the refreshing power of the Holy Spirit, and be brought into the community of believers. That's option number one. For all mankind, by the way. Or they could remain a stiff-necked people and continue to resist the Holy Spirit. We know their response by what they will do next week. They stone Stephen to death. They, 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 their teeth gnash at the truth of God being holy, man being sinful, and Christ being the Savior. The good news, my beloved, and this is such great news about such a hard speech, is that you don't have to follow in their footsteps. We don't have to be like the patriarchs. We don't have to be like the Israelites. And we certainly don't have to be like the Sanhedrin. I do believe that one of the reasons Dr. Luke has this very long speech in the book of Acts is to say, hey, you don't have to do that. There's a whole other way to approach God. There's a whole other way to walk in the Spirit. For those who are truly saved, for those who have given their life to Christ, you can live a very, very different way. You say, well, how, how is that? I'm a sinner and I struggle with sin every day. I do too. But there's power in the Spirit. You don't have to resist Jesus. You don't have to resist the blessings of Jesus. See, when you're saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you too now can submit to the rule of Christ and the power of Christ. You can come under his redeeming power. 
We don't have to be like the patriarchs or the Israelites or the Sanhedrin. How do you live under the rule of Christ without the rule of Christ being a burden? You say, well, first, you must see that every time you sin, even the smallest sins, you're rebelling against the rule of Jesus Christ. You know that. You're resisting his good rule. And instead of submitting to the rule of Jesus, who is king and good, you're submitting to your own heart, your own sinful desires. Christ says, love your neighbor. Your heart says, love your neighbor if your neighbor is lovable. Christ says, use your time and your energies and your monies to further my kingdom. Your heart says, I'll use my resources for myself and what is left over, I'll use for the kingdom of Christ. Maybe. What we fail to see, my beloved, is the rule of Christ. That's living in accordance with his word, the oracles of God. It is, and most of you know, it's the best way to live. It's to live as you're created to live. Every single law in the context of the gospel is intended to bless us. Not only is it the best way to live, it's the best way to glorify God. How do you glorify God? By living in loving obedience to him. That makes sense. Every parent gets that with their child. I think the greatest mistake and the reason that we don't submit to the rule of Christ is because we miss the ruler. We don't see who it is who's given us the law, the way to live. It's Jesus You heard read already. Listen again. This is your ruler. Christ said, come to me all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden. Is that you? Christ says, come to me. Why? He says, I will give you rest. That's my kind of ruler. Not because I think we should be slothful, right? Jesus has high expectations of those who follow him. But there's rest. There's gentleness. There's love in Christ, our ruler, He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's your ruler, that's Jesus. If you've ever had someone over you that you had to submit to, they had rules, you had to submit to them and they were good. Maybe it was a boss, maybe it was a coach. I had a coach one time and he was was one of the best coaches I've ever had. He He was very strict, we would say today, strict. Um, very organized, taught really well, but he loved us, and we knew that, and that came out through his coaching, and it was a joy to submit to his rule. The rule of Christ is not like the rule of man, and it's not like the rule of your own heart. He is gentle and lowly. He's the perfect ruler, and I dare say, if this world could see Christ clearly, they would flock to him. No more political parties, No more submission to our own flesh. They would run to Jesus and say, Jesus, please rule over me. You are a good king. Secondly, I I think that we cannot, we can stop resisting when we see the redemption of Christ in all its glory. And you might say, well, I'm a a Christian. I've already accepted and received Christ as my redeemer. Every time, my beloved, you chase after an idol, You know what that idol is in your life. To heal a wound, to pursue a fantasy maybe, to create your own identity or maybe to justify a sin. Every single time you go after an idol, you're rejecting Christ as your redeemer. We're no different than the Israelites making the golden calf for ourselves, saying Christ is not sufficient, Christ does not satisfy. But the Bible is really clear. There's no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved, must be redeemed. It is Jesus. It's him. Only Christ 
can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Only Christ has the power to forgive you of your sins and bring you all the way into heaven. It's not only foolish to turn away from Jesus the Redeemer and turn to another form of redemption and idol. It is the height, listen to this, it's the height of self-deprivation. It's the height of injury that you bring to yourself. You were created in the image of God to be, into, to be in an intimate, loving, passionate relationship with the creator of the universe. That's why you were made, to bring him glory. So you were not only redeemed out of sin, you were redeemed into the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So to turn to an idol of any kind, to resist Jesus as your perfect redeemer, is to deny yourself the greatest joy the greatest love, the greatest ecstasy in the universe. Yes, ecstasy is the right word because it's God who we worship. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone resist a redeemer who loves sinners like us so much that even as he was hanging upon that cross, broken body, spilled blood, receiving in his person the full wrath of God, said, prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the Redeemer that I want. That's the Redeemer that we all should want to express that type of truly unimaginable love. So we don't have to resist his rule. We don't have to resist his redemption. And I'll close on this. We don't have to resist his power. We don't have to resist the power of Jesus. There are, there are so many today in the Western church that seem hopeless. There's a, a sense of despair, especially post-COVID. We've come out of this we're coming out of it. When the Christian at any point in time in human history, at any time, believes that it is a hopeless time or a time to despair or a time to be discouraged, my beloved, you're forgetting the power of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ that we're talking about. The Israelites forgot the power of Moses as displayed in the wilderness. And as a result, they turned their hearts toward Egypt and they made a, made a golden calf. The Sanhedrin refused to believe in the power of God displayed in the deliverer Jesus and it resulted in their hearts turning to the law and the temple and made them murderers. My beloved, the good news is God is no less powerful today than he was in the time of Moses when he brought the plagues, parted seas, and dropped food from the sky. The same Jesus, the same Jesus who healed the sick gave sight to the blind, and raised people from the dead, is not only alive and well, he is seated upon his throne, and he's the head of the church. He's the head of your life if you're in Christ. He's the head. So at no point in time can the true believer, indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the word of God in hand, say, that sin I cannot overcome. That is a lie. You have the power of Christ. Certainly the power of Christ is greater than the power of any sin in your life. Certainly the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is able to overcome even the deepest and darkest of sins that no one else knows about but you. Certainly he is. That power is real. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present Son of God is intimately leading his people, his church today. He hasn't forgotten us, my beloved. He hasn't forgotten us. So we can, as a body of believers, no matter how dark things are in your life, no matter how dark things get here in San Jose or the Bay Area or California, we can rest assured that the power of Jesus, our deliverer, will not only ensure that we make it to the end, because you want to make it to the end, 
John 6, 39, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on that last day. That's you if you're in Christ. If you've turned from your sins and put your faith, your life, your hope in Jesus to deliver, then you have hope now and forever. You cannot be lost. Oh, that's good news. But also number two, the power of Jesus continues to work powerfully amongst his people today. He does. He is. He works through his church in order to ensure that every single person ordained before the foundations of the world to be saved will be saved. And he's going to continue that work until every last one is brought in. And when that last soul is brought in, then he comes again in glory. In other words, we can live in the power and confidence of our Lord right now, serving him, sacrificing him, laboring hard in the gospel, knowing that your labor, no matter what it looks like, no matter what fruit is born, it is not in vain. It is not in vain. God is powerful and still working powerfully through his people. My beloved, this passage is filled with examples of how not to live, how not to resist the grace and mercy of God through his deliverers, how not to resist Jesus Christ. Don't resist his rule. Don't resist his redemption. Don't resist his power. It's foolish. So let's pray right now that God would give us the wisdom in his spirit to learn to live as a body of believers in a manner that truly brings God glory and honor. Not like the patriarchs with Joseph or the Israelites with Moses and certainly not the Sanhedrin with Jesus, but as faithful followers like Stephen. Let's live like Stephen and give honor and glory to the one who is truly worthy, and that's Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony of wrongs that gives us the ability to live as you desire us to live. It is overwhelming and tragic to see the history of your people for so long rejecting you and those that you sent to save them. You didn't have to send a single deliverer, but be out of your infinite grace and mercy, you did and you continue to in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would give us not only the wisdom, but in your spirit, the desire not to be a stiff-necked people. Our hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. We have been born again. We have desires to live in accordance with your holy oracles. I pray, Father, that would translate into our day-to-day lives and how we relate to one another and how we work and how we play. Lord, be gracious with this church that we might not be rebellious and stiff-necked, but we might be the most brilliant testimony here in this place at this time that others might see us, hear the gospel, see our lives, and glorify you by repenting and believing too. We desire many more to be brought in the fold, Father. I ask for there be faithful witnesses to that end. In Christ's name, amen.